see all of you here tonight. Are you happy to be here? Uh, aren't you enjoying this uh, summer? Or early spring, whatever you want to call it. It's like, wow, where's winter? I mean, I want at least a couple of freezing days to kill the skeeters, right? God give it to us. Amen. Good to see all of you. We're going to talk tonight about something that uh, really, one of my purposes as a pastor is to convince you of what I'm going to share tonight, that you are gifted and that God has a place for you in the body of Christ, that no, and, and nobody can take your place. Only you can do you, right? Only you can be you. And, and so God is on you and in you and wants to move through you. And, but it's never going to happen until we get so convinced we do it. Amen? So we're going to talk about motivational gifts tonight. What makes you tick? What, what cranks your chain with spiritual things? What moves you? What, what stirs your heart when you, when you see it happening as far as ministry or uh, just Christian outreach, um, church activities, and so forth? What pulls on you? What do you see happening? And then you go, boy, I'd like to do that. Boy, I'd like to do that. Happened to me with preaching. I, I was in a living room, and, and the guy was teaching from a stool on the floor. And we were all on the floor in Indian fashion, you know, just, just sitting there, no chairs, no nothing. And he said something. He was ministering the Word of God. And something in me rose up and something fell on me at the same time. And it was like, I want to do that. Now, what I didn't know was that was God's motivational gift in me talking to me. Because what God calls you to do, he'll give you a desire to do. Right? So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for motivational gifts tonight. We thank you, Lord, for what you're going to show us out of the word of God. I pray for a divine stirring to happen in this congregation. And the Lord, people who have never stepped out, who have never uh, just gone forward in faith and, and done anything in your name for the glory of God to reach others will be stirred to get off the bleachers and onto the field in Jesus' name. Now, I want you to pray with me and just say, Lord, tonight, stir my heart in the direction you've called me to go. And show me the place you want me in, in your body, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, God heard that prayer. Now, I want to remind you that um, I'm going to finish this next week. And then the week after, we start Hebrews. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm making a little play on words. I love coffee. So when I hear Hebrews, I think he... Now you're never going to forget. I know it's hokey. It's terrible. It's an old joke, but I use it anyway. So, but we'll start Hebrews. And, and Hebrews, I've never taught through Hebrews. In all the years I've pastored, I've never gone from chapter 1 to chapter 13 in Hebrews. Never done it. But I've been getting ready, and it's so rich. It's so good. So I want you to get ready for Hebrews. And uh, so everybody say with me, Hebrews. Amen. Yeah, I know. You're never going to think of that name again the same. Oh, yeah, Pastor Jeff taught on Hebrews. All right. Tonight, motivational gifts. A former college football coach was asked, what contribution does professional sports make to the physical fitness of Americans? He answered, very little. 
A professional football game is a happening where thousands of spectators desperately needing exercise sit in the stands watching 22 men on the field desperately needing rest. But you know what? That pretty much describes the typical church today. A host of spectators and a handful of participants. Ask any pastor, any church. Go ask them. Um, how many of your people are involved? Now, now, some churches do better than others, but they'll tell you, well, it's a handful that really drive the whole machine. It's a handful of volunteers. Everybody else is spectators. But I'm going to show you tonight, in love, because I'm talking to myself here, listen, God had to kick me onto the field because I had such um, insecurity and stage fright. He had to kick me into doing what he had called me to do. He had to just really use people to push me out there. So I'm not in any way condemning tonight. I, I want to be illuminating. I want to be, um, I want to just, I want to show you that God's idea, God's view of the church is not the way most of us were raised. Most of us were raised, hire a preacher, give him some deacons, and then all the ministry is supposed to happen right there. He's the man. Do you know why so many preachers have nervous breakdowns? That's why. Because they're looked at to, to do all the ministry. And, and that's not at all God's plan. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers to equip who? The saints. Say, that be me. To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Did you catch that? Now, that's just not pretty stuff that Paul wrote to sound spiritual. No. He's saying that's the way it's supposed to be, that the pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets and evangelists, but primarily the pastors' teachers, are called to equip the saved among them, and that should be almost everybody, to do the work of ministry. Okay? So Paul wrote, we the church, let me read to you what, the way Paul saw the church by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote, we the church are to speak the truth in love, growing, everybody say growing, in every way more and more like Christ, not shrinking, we are not to be the incredible shrinking church, we're to be the incredible growing church, and it begins with inner spiritual growth in every member. Now, how does that happen? Jesus Christ, who is the head of his body, the church, he makes the whole body do what? Read it with me. Fit together. Everybody say it again. Fit together perfectly. Now, how does that happen? As each part does its own special work. Everybody say each. Now, last time I looked in the dictionary, each meant everybody. All right? So as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts do what? Grow. Say it again. Grow. So that's the second time we see growth here. Growing, grow. So it helps the other parts grow. What helps the other parts grow? When each part releases its gift into the whole. When each part, say that, that's me, I'm a part. Say with me, I'm a part of the whole. Okay, so when each part 
releases its gift into the hole, it helps the other parts grow. So let's flip that coin. If you're not releasing your gift, there's a part of us that aren't growing. Now, I don't know if this matters to you or not. You may just see church as, well, you know, I go punch the time clock and I go on Sundays and if I'm feeling real spiritual, I go on Wednesdays. And if I'm feeling real spiritual, I go to the prayer meeting. But, I, you know, I just don't have a burden for the church, Pastor Jeff. But let me ask you a question. Um, do you have a burden about where our culture is going? Do you have a burden about the sin that is just mushrooming? Do you have a burden about all the pain and heartbreak and addiction and abortions and all the stuff that's going on, then what do you think the remedy is? Is the remedy a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian? No. When you put your trust in politicians, I guarantee you one thing, they will always let you down. So, so what is the solution? Well, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Okay? So anytime a culture has ever been radically changed in all of church history, you can go back. When a, when a whole society was transformed, turned back, made healthy, strengthened, delivered, and healed, it was through a move of God that happened through the church of Jesus Christ. In a, in a revival or an awakening. So we've got to understand that when God gave his plan for the local church and, and he chose Paul to be the primary architect of the local church. Paul describes for us by the Holy Spirit the way church is supposed to be run and operated and function and growing and everything else. God gave it to Paul primarily. So look what he's telling us. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is, read it with me, Let's all shout it out loud. Healthy and growing and full of love. Do you want to be in a healthy church? Do you want to be in a growing church? Do you want to be in a loving church? Then how does it happen? With each part participating, contributing to the whole. So therefore, is it imperative, dear church, is it imperative that everybody in the church, in any local church, plugs in and gets involved and gets off the bleachers and onto the field. Yes, it is, absolutely. Or that church is going to stagnate, and that, and that church is, is, is probably not going to do a whole lot to touch the culture around it. So just wanting you to see, just this is Paul's, what the Holy Ghost showed Paul, this is the way it's supposed to work. You know, you may be a finger, you may be a toe, you may be an arm, you may be an ear, you may be an eye, you may be a mouth, um, you may be a leg. But, but whatever you are in the body of Christ, we can't make it without you. Listen, if I stub my little toe and my little toe is hurting, my whole body hates it and is aware of it and feels it and wants that little toe to be healed so the rest of the body can also be sound. If the whole body is healthy, we're feeling great, Amen. All right. I think I heard John Hagee say one time, he said, the older you get, if it's not, how do you put it? He said, he said, he said, if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't work. We don't want to get there. We want every part of our bodies working, right? Functioning. And so it is in the body of Christ. So let me do a quick recap of what we've learned so far about spiritual gifts. The word for spiritual gifts in the Greek language 
is charisma. And that means gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. A spiritual gift is a gift that comes from the grace of God. So let me just share a few more things about gifts. Second, every Christian has a spiritual gift. Everybody. I want you to say with me, I've got one. You do. If you're saved, you've got a spiritual gift. Let me show you. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and he said, each man has his own gift from God. Peter wrote, as each one has received a gift, a charisma, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What does he say to do with it? Minister it to who? One another. So we're to one another, one another. We're to minister our gift to one another, and that's how the body grows and is healthy and gets strong. Okay? Now, I hope we're getting this tonight. I can see the bulb going off in some of you. And there's, there, there's a variety of these gifts. There's different, he said there's different kinds of spiritual gifts, but they all come from the same spirit who is the source of all of them. And, and guess what? There are different outlets for the various gifts, and we would call that different ministries. There are differences, Paul writes, of ministries, outlets for service but the same Lord. I'll have people visit the church and they'll say, do you have jail ministry? Yes, that's one of our outlets. Do you have street ministry? Yes, that's one of our outlets. Uh, do, you, do you go to, to uh, retirement homes? Well, I, I've heard that some people do here in our church, and that is one of our outlets. And if we don't have it, then if it's your burden, you're anointed and you're appointed. See, what people do is they shop churches. They go, do, do you have a ministry of jail? No, well, I'm leaving. I'm going to go somewhere where they do. Why don't you start it? If you've got the burden, why don't you start it? But no, no, no. Well, anyway, I'm not going to get on that. Now, the gifts of the Spirit are given, why? To help others. He says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. There's that each one again. For the profit of everybody. So we all profit from the gift God gave you. We all profit. Now, catch this. It's the Spirit that chooses which gift or gifts we get. Listen to Paul. Quote, it's the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. He decides it. So that lets us know the Holy Ghost is not a fog or a mist or some force uh, the wind blowing, you know, something that we really can't understand. No, the Holy Spirit is God the Spirit. And God the Spirit decides what gift you're going to have when you get saved. And he gifts you. It's his decision, not mine, not yours. Now, when our gift is properly exercised, it perfects and builds up the body of Christ. Now, spiritual gifts can be placed into two categories, ministry gifts and motivational gifts. You find this in the Word of God, clear as a bell. Now, last time we were together, about a month ago, we first studied the nine ministry gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, which are themselves divided into three categories. Here they are. First is revelation gifts. That's the Word of wisdom, the Word of knowledge, and discernment of spirits. If you missed this, it's in our archives. You can go to our website and go to our archives and listen to any of these messages that I've taught. You can also find the written messages online. 
So there's no need for you to want to say, well, I wish I had been here for that. You can easily go hear it. Now, the second category, power gifts. That's the gift of faith, the gift of healings, and the gift of miracles. The third category, utterance gifts. Gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, and the gift of interpretation. Now, those are the ministry gifts, the three categories that make up the nine ministry gifts. But tonight, we're going to look at the motivational gifts listed in Romans chapter 12, 6 to 8. So let's read them. Paul writes, Having then gifts differing according to the grace given to us, let us do what with them? Use them. Here they are. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now that's seven motivational gifts. And we're tackling these tonight and next week. Now let's define motivational gift. You say, what is it? You say that, but I don't know what that means. Well, here it is. This is my definition. I'm going to read you another one in a minute. But I thought long and hard about this. I want to make it simple. So here is simply what a motivational gift is. It's a supernatural, God-given gift accompanied with a strong inner desire to use it. That's what it was for me. And that's what I see in the Bible. So again, what's a motivational gift? It's a supernatural, God-given gift accompanied with a strong inner desire to use it. We might call it a divine want-to-do along with a supernatural ability to do it. So I want to do it, and I'm graced to do it. I want to do it, and I'm gifted to do it. God doesn't call you to do something he doesn't gift you to do. He doesn't tell a bird to fly without giving it wings. He doesn't say fly. If he has no wings, he's just going to live frustrated. God says to some people, preach. He says to some people, serve. He says to other people, exhort. And he's not going to tell you to do it if you don't have a gift to do it. So there's the want to do and the power to do, and that's a motivational gift. The Apostle Paul wrote, for God is working in you. Everybody say, he's working in me. Do you believe that? If you believe that, can you raise your hand? If you believe he's working in you each and every day, is God working in you? Did he work in you today? Raise your hand if he worked in you today. Oh, yeah. He's working in us every day. Now, God is working in you doing what? What is the result of God working? Giving you the, say it with me, desire and the what? Power to do what pleases him. So there it is, motivational gift. He gives you desire, and then he gives you power to do what he gave you the desire to do. Our God is not complicated. Another definition for a motivational gift is this one. God working through a believer to give divine unction, strength, and power to accomplish his will in the believer's life so that as a channel of God's grace, The church is healthy and grows. Now, knowing your motivational spiritual gift, why is this important? I'm going to give you seven quick reasons. Number one, you'll know God's will for your life. 
you'll know God's will for your life beyond going to heaven. A lot of people see Christianity, they say, yeah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. And to them, that is the limit of God's will for them. But I've learned that God's will is so much more. Heaven is just the final destination. There's a long journey between now and then. And on earth, God has a plan for every believer. And, and part of, a big part of that plan is, what did he gift you with? What did he put within you and give you a desire to do and the grace to do? Because everybody got one. Second, your motivational spiritual gift will, you'll discover your spiritual job description. When you know your motivational gift, you will know your spiritual job description. Third, you will take your appropriate place in the body of Christ. I've seen people want to be a mouth who were an ear. I've seen people want to be a hand who were a foot. You know, I've seen people who, who, who wanted to be a hand, but they were an eye. You can't say, no, our, what, what if your arm tonight said to you, I'm sick of this arm business. I've wanted to be an eye since I was born. So I'm no longer going to be an arm. I'm going to sit here and be limp, and I'm not going to be an arm until you make me an eye. You've got a body in rebellion. And so does the body of Christ. There's people, they, they look at somebody in ministry or whatever, they don't want to be that way. But no, the best thing you can do is be what God made you to be. Nobody can be you better than you. So when you know your motivational gift, then you look around and you go, okay, where's my appropriate place in the body of Christ? And there you plug in. Fourth, you begin to see yourself as a channel of God's grace. I am convinced that so many people don't have joy in their Christian walk. Listen carefully to me. A lot of people don't have joy in their walk because they are not functioning in their gift. They are not. They're sitting, soaking, and souring. They look like they were baptized in pickle juice. It, it, when I look at them, I go, if God, if, that, if Christianity is what did what I see to your face, I don't want your Christianity. No, no. When you do what God made you to do, listen to me, you have joy and you have fulfillment. When you're moving your motivational spiritual gift and you understand what it is, you avoid overcommitment and burn out. People a lot of times burn out because they're trying to function in a gift that they weren't given. And when you function in a gift you weren't given, it's maximum effort with minimum results. But if you flow in your gift, it's maximum results with minimum effort. I'm telling you. Okay, all of us ought to be doing something where we say this to ourselves. This is what I was made to do. I was born to do this. I was born again to do this. Okay. It also helps you become more appreciative of what others are called and anointed to do. Say, that's not my gift. This is mine, but that's theirs. And I so appreciate them moving in their gift. Seven, it's a part of maintaining the health and growth of the body of Christ. When everybody starts moving in their gift, the body becomes healthy and it grows. Now, understanding your motivational gift is so important to the effective and joyful living of your Christian life. What I was just saying, one reason is the root of the word for spiritual gift, charis, is car, C-H-A-R, transliterated. And that means joy. Amen. So, 
So moving in your gift brings joy. So let's give a brief description now of what each of the seven gifts means, and, and mean, and then I'm going to just focus on two tonight. Prophecy is the motivation to proclaim truth and expose sin. That's the motivational gift of prophecy. You get around somebody with that motivational gift, and they want to proclaim truth, and they want to expose sin. Ministry, which means servant, is the motivation to serve others. You're a doer. You love meeting practical needs. Teaching is the motivation to research and communicate truth. A researcher, a clarifier of truth. You're one of these people that you nitpick words. You nitpick doctrines. You study all the fine points, line upon line, precept upon precept. And you make people crazy who aren't that way. But I'm going to get that later when I get to it. Exhortation. The motivation, the person with the motivational gift of exhortation is to encourage others to live a victorious life. These are the extremely positive people that stimulate faith and promote spiritual growth, and you want to take them on vacation with you. You don't want to take a prophet because all they're going to be doing is talking about what's right and wrong, and, and if you're doing anything that they even think is a little bit off, they're going to tell you about it, and you're not having a whole lot of fun with a prophet on vacation. Who would you rather have on vacation with you, Paul or Peter? Everybody say Peter. Hey, hey, I'm all into hand gliding. Let's go because I walked on water. I'm, I'd love to try that too. But Paul would be real serious. you know. So anyway, now, so that's exhortation. Now, number five, motivational gift of giving. This is the motivation to give time, talent, energy, and finances to benefit others and advance the gospel. That is not to say that people without this gift should not give. Everybody should be giving something into the body of Christ, I believe. But this person particularly has a motivational gift. They're all about finding ways they can give. Later on, more on that later. Now, leading. This person has the motivation to administrate, to organize, to lead, or to direct. They are facilitators that plan ahead and they complete tasks. You put these people in charge of your building program. You put these people in charge of structuring classes and, and the organization of the house. I am not an organizer. Anybody that's worked with me for two weeks or more will tell you he's not an organizer. I'm not an organizer. Now, I'm organized in my private life, very organized. But organizing classes and things like that bores me to tears. I don't want to do it. But I know people that salivate to do it. I say, you go, guy. You go, girl because that's not my gift. So I pray people in who have all the gifts that I don't have because I need their help. Amen? Finally, mercy. The person with the motivation of mercy shows compassion, love, and care to the hurting. These individuals gravitate to homeless ministry, jail ministry, hospital visitation, hurting people. The person with this gift, stick them in a congregation, and they have radar to find the people hurting the worst. And you find them after the service, sitting down with them, talking to them, praying with them, crying with them. And we love that kind of person, right? 
when we've messed up, fallen, or our heart's been broken, we don't want to. We don't want to talk to a prophet. We want to talk to somebody with mercy, right? How many of you have mercy? Wow, look at all the mercy in this house. Amen. How many of you have prophecy? <laughs> Two. <laughs> okay. Teaching. Come on, everybody. Teaching. All right. Exhortation. All right. Giving. Oh, look at all the giving. Hallelujah. Leading. Organizing. Okay. And, uh, all right. We got everything here. Now, let's unpack the first two motivational gifts, and we'll spend the rest of the evening on this. First, the motivational gift of prophecy. I want you to really understand it. This is a motivational gift. Now, we see in Scripture, starting at this word prophecy, most of us tend to go back to the Old Testament, and we think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, and these are really these, these serious heavy-duty, heavy spiritual individuals who tell the future, okay? In the Old Testament, these prophets were indeed amazing. Matter of fact, I can prove God exists by Bible prophecy. I've had atheists say to me, you can't prove God exists. Now I say to them, oh, yes, I can. How can you prove God exists? I can prove God exists by Bible prophecy. These men, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and so forth, were given future predictions by God that came true to the tiniest detail. Truly amazing. Usually when they predicted the future, it had to do with, here's the judgment that's going to fall on you if you don't repent. Take Jeremiah. He started prophesying to Judah when he was a very young man. He prophesied of what exactly what was going to happen to them, that the Babylonians were going to come in and take them, and they were going to go captive and lose everything. And he went into very, very difficult to read detail of what was going to happen to them if they didn't repent. He began as a young man. As an old man, he watched the Babylonians come in and totally destroy the city, destroy the temple, take the people off into captivity. He even predicted how long they would be there, 70 years. How do you do that? You can't do that unless God, who doesn't inhabit time, tells you. Okay? So that's Jeremiah. So when we see these Old Testament prophets, not always, but more times than not, they're telling Israel and Judah and other nations that God points them toward what's going to happen to them if they don't repent. So they would foretell future events. But then they would also foretell. They were, they were involved in foretelling, but also in foretelling. And that means a message from God for the current time. They spoke directly to the people of their, their day with a prophetic now word generally to repent and get right with God. So they would talk right to them. And, and not just Old Testament prophets. Jesus did that. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you see this great temple here, Herod's temple, which was the second temple that Herod had renovated into this incredible structure? 
The second temple that they rebuilt when they came back from Babylonian captivity, Herod came along and made it into this incredible worldwide wonder. And they said, Jesus, isn't this something? And Jesus said, let me tell you what's going to happen. He said, the day is coming, not one stone is going to be left upon another. It's going to be totally torn down to the ground. And Jerusalem is going to be ravaged and destroyed. They were shocked and stunned. But about 30 years after he said that, it happened. So he spoke to them, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not come to me. You did not recognize the day of your visitation. So now you're going to lose it all. He told them, Jesus was the greatest prophet in the Bible. He was all the gifts wrapped in one. So we come to the New Testament and go, well, what kind of prophet is there in the New Testament? Well, God may use somebody in our day to foretell something future. If you look at your New Testament, that happens some. Agabus prophesied of a terrible famine that was going to come in the book of Acts, and it came just like he said. But for the most part, The motivation of today's prophet is generally to use Scripture to foretell and expose unrighteous motives and actions in the lives of God's people. I know when I'm listening to somebody with a prophetic uh, motivation because I'm always convicted. I always feel like he's reading my mail. I always feel like somebody called him and told him about me before I got there. And when I'm done, I want to repent. That's a prophetic motivation. Okay, And prophetic people also encourage others with what God will do once they have repented. Now, let me give you some characteristics of the motivational gift of prophecy. The Greek word for prophet is prophetia. That's prophet, prophetia, which means the gift of communicating and enforcing revealed truth. The prominent idea of prophetia is the inspired delivery of warning, exhortation, instruction, judging, and making manifest the secrets of the heart. So in the context of motivational gifts, it refers to somebody who is especially sensitive to perceiving the will of God and the condition of others. I know people that can walk into a church and within... 10 to 15 minutes, they get a read on the spiritual condition and level and health of that church. And they're able to bring a prophetic, scanning, searching, convicting word to that church that is cleansing and causes that church to get some things right, and then they go up to another level. That's the prophetic motivation. If you're around somebody with the gift of prophecy, the motivational gift, here's the way it manifests. They need to express themselves. You cannot tell somebody prophetic not to express themselves. They will blow up. This person needs to express their thoughts and ideas verbally, especially when matters of right and wrong are involved. They feel a responsibility to correct those who do wrong. Peter spoke more often than any other disciple and also became the main spokesman for the early church. And Peter's primary motivational gift was prophecy. 
The prophetic motivation gets quick impressions of people. Prophets tend to make very quick judgments on what they hear and see. They can quickly discern, as I was telling you a moment ago, a person or a congregation's character. They accurately identify good and evil, and they hate evil. They usually view people or situations as either in or out. You are, there is no fence to the prophet. Don't tell me you're on the fence. There isn't any fence. You're in or you're out. You're good or you're bad. You're right or you're wrong. There's no, black, there's no gray with the prophet. How many of you are married to one? See, you wouldn't even tell the truth because you're scared to raise your hand. Okay. They usually view people in or out. They are bold and outspoken. They tend to express their views before others speak. In fact, Peter speaks first more than any other disciple. Have you ever noticed that? Even when he doesn't know what to say, he says. Prophetic motivations have alertness to dishonesty. This person has an amazing ability to sense when somebody or something is not what it appears to be. So in other words, they operate in discerning of spirits. They react strongly to any form of deception or dishonesty. They separate themselves from those who refuse to repent of evil, and they see everything as either black or white. They are open about their own faults. They're open about their own failures just as they want others to be about theirs, and they're quick to judge themselves when they fail. Let me tell you about the prophetic motivation. Nobody's harder on themselves than somebody with a prophetic motivation. Because they are so cut and dry, so, so you're in or out or right or wrong. And they expect others to toe the line. When they mess up, 20 men can't beat on them harder than they beat on themselves. Man, you've got to come and pick a prophet up off the ground. You, gotta, you need a spatula to get them up off the ground, off the cement, when a prophet fails. Because they're hard on themselves. That's why I think Peter... When he failed the Lord, it says he went out and wept bitterly. And then he went right back to his old career of fishing. And he was basically saying, I'm out of here. I messed up. Surely he doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Surely, surely, surely. And Jesus had to come find him. That's the prophetic motivation. Okay? They have wholehearted involvement. Wholehearted involvement. When a prophet gets involved with something... When they're committed to a cause, they are all in people. When Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, the other 11 sat there and said, cool. Walking on the water. What did Peter say? I want in. We talk about him sinking. That, that man walked on water until he sank. Have you ever done that? I've never done that. Last, they have a willingness to suffer for what is, oh, I'm sorry, six. They have a loyalty to truth. Oh, this is the prophet. A loyalty to truth over people. Prophets are loyal to truth, even if it means cutting off relationships. When Jesus asked the disciples if they were also going to leave him, Peter said, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words to eternal life. He said, I'm in. I'm here, and, and my fidelity is to the truth you're teaching. That's where my, you, you alone have the words. And know the way to eternal life. So prophetic people are willing to do right, even if it means suffering alone for it. 
Last, their willingness to suffer for what is right. Prophetic people are willing to suffer when it comes to standing for the truth or doing what is right. They view the Bible as the basis for truth, belief, action, and authority, which we should all do. All of us should see the Bible that way. They have strict personal standards and very strong opinions and convictions. That's the prophetic. That's their prophetic motivation, and we need them. I love listening to prophetic people. My favorite preachers are prophetic preachers. That's my favorite preachers. I have a handful that I listen to all the time. I mean all the time. A day doesn't go by. I don't listen to some other preacher on, um, on, online one way or another. I listen to other messages, and my favorites are the prophetic preachers. I mean, they come on, they roar like a lion. Even if they have a soft voice, they roar like a lion. They, they don't cut corners. They're not politically correct, which I can't stand. They tell the truth as it is to people as they are. They don't apologize for truth, but they speak the truth in love. Man, that's my favorite. Amen? Anybody else like that here? Okay. Now, next is the motivational gift of ministry or serving, and then we close with this one. The King James Version, the only version. How many of you have a New Living Translation? Hold it up. How many of you read a New Living Translation? Hold it up. How many of you have a um, Living Bible? Oh, there we go. How many of you have a New King James? Hold it up. How many have a New American Standard? Hold it up. All right. Uh, how many have a King James? Uh, Wouldest thou holdeth it upeth? There we go. Okay. The King James Version translates the word for serving as ministry. The King James calls serving ministry. Now, that's good. The NIV, as well as most other modern versions, use the word serving. But it's the same Greek word. The Greek word is diakonia or Diakonos is, is, uh, refers to deacons. But diakonia is the Greek word for serving, to do service, to serve others. It conveys the idea of somebody who likes doing practical things in order to be of service to others. And that's where we get the word deacon, like I already said. So now we've got a motivational gift, diakonia, that is to serve, to help people with practical things. Now, the person who personifies the profile of a server in the Bible is Timothy. Timothy was Paul's son in the ministry, and as a server heart, Timothy needed a Paul in his life. Why? Because a server needs somebody in authority over them. Why? Because a server receives joy in helping and assisting people, carrying out instructions, and just being of use in a wide variety of ways. And let me tell you, we have a church loaded with servers, people with this motivational gift, and thank God for it. So let's look at their characteristics, and we'll close. One, the the person with the motivational gift to serve sees and meets practical needs. See, what I see and meet is spiritual needs. I'm always looking for spiritual needs. Salvation, edification, exhortation, comfort, teaching. All of my motivation goes to meeting spiritual needs. But the the one with the motivational gift of serving doesn't think like me, and I don't think like them. They're motivated to look for your practical needs. 
Are you clothed well? Are you hungry? Do you have enough money? Is it, our, the ministry we have in this house, of, we send out a group of people to go to other people's homes or businesses or places where something is broken. It's called tent menders. And we fix, we, we repair their, their homes, plumbing, carpentry, whatever. And the people involved in tent menders all have this motivational gift of serving. They love it. When they get done doing somebody's house, fixing it, they're full of joy. I'm telling you, it makes their week. They love doing it. Amen? Important needs that would seem insignificant to others catch the eye and attention of the server. They can spot a need a mile away. Now, these needs are usually physical. However, the server knows that by meeting those needs, they're going to bring encouragement and strength to those who receive help. Now, sometimes their quickness in meeting needs may cause a server to appear pushy or intrusive, but a server will put extra touches to jobs. They'll go the second mile and do more than is expected, more than what is asked. You know, they'll come to you, can I mow your lawn? No, it's okay. No, no, really, can I mow your lawn? No, 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 I, well, no you don't have to do that. No, and, and, and then you shut the door and then you hear a lawnmower going. You go, I told you, you didn't have to do this. No, 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 no. Hey, God told me to do it. That's the server. So mow the lawn. Okay? Second, they free others to achieve. That's what a server is motivated to do. They free other people up to do what they need to do. The joy of the server is not just in initiating tasks, but knowing that through their service, they're bringing a peace of mind to another person that will allow that person to be more productive in the task God has called them to do. In other words... It gives them pleasure to free others to do more important things. Timothy served Paul so that Paul could carry out his apostolic ministry. Amen. The server will disregard their own weariness because the server sees the importance of the task which they have begun. They'll freely use up their own personal assets of time, money, and strength They'll work beyond their physical limits, sometimes resulting in actual physical problems. In other words, they will wear themselves down and out because of that motivation. They'll just go and go and go. They're like the Energizer Bunny. You got to make them stop. Stop. You've done enough. No, no, I really haven't. No, you really have. Stop. In doing so, the server has a tendency to overlook personal health and comfort in serving others. What did the Bible say about Epaphroditus? He prayed for you until he reached the place he was sick nigh unto death. Sick nigh unto death in his service to you. In his service to you. And that's the server. Now, their focus is not on their self, but rather on the completion of the task. Their disregard for personal needs gets them trouble in trouble at home. Honey, why are you at the church so much? Oh, I just got to do, I'm needed up there. Well, you're needed here too. I know, I know. I wish there was two of me, but there's not. So the server has got to learn to strike a balance. Can Can I tell you something? This is free. This is not in my notes at all. Every Christian needs to learn to say yes, and every Christian needs to learn to say no. You've got to discern when you should say yes and when you should say no, because here's what happens with servers. People see them serving, 
and loving it. And they go, oh, well, I'll ask them to serve me too. And the server can't say no. People who can't say no end up burning out. God hasn't called you or I to burn out. He's called us to burn on. So you have to know when to say an anointed no. Everybody say no. And an anointed yes. Everybody say yes. See, whenever I'm, people, I've had people say to me, you have to get up and go visit that person. One day this came out of my mouth. At first I thought it was rebellion. But then I thought, no, that was God. I said, I don't have to do anything but what God tells me to do. Mary and Martha sent somebody to go find Jesus. You have to come pray for Lazarus. He's sick. He's dying. What did Jesus do? He sat there. Four days. What was his message? I don't have to do anything but what God tells me to do. They have difficulty saying no. They get involved in way too many things. That's their trap. Number five, they're alert to likes and dislikes. Those with the gift of serving have an amazing ability to find out and remember the special interests of the people they serve. Birthdays, anniversaries, special occasions, they remember these things. Oh, I got to tell you, folks, and, and I'm being transparent with you. This was Kathy's gift, and this is Cindy's gift. Kathy remembered all the birthdays, all the anniversaries. If you left it up to me, I'd have 100 people a year mad at me. It's not that I don't care, but it's not in my mindset to go, oh, oh, next week is so-and-so's birthday. That's the last thing I'm thinking about. Even my own family has had to get on me about this. I'm trying, but it's not my gift. So I get people around me who have the gift because they save me. Amen? But they remember favorite foods, special colors, types of home furnishings, favorite activities. I don't remember any of that. I remember were they saved or were they lost? Were they walking with God or were they not? Were they mature or were they immature? That's me. Timothy was instructed to bring Paul his cloak books, and especially the parchments. He left Timothy to bring him the things that mattered to him. That's the server. They need to be appreciated, not because of what they're doing is so they'll get praise, but when you praise them and appreciate them, they know they did what they intended to do for you. So you need to remind them that you so never take a server uh, for granted. Because one day you'll wake up and they'll be gone. You go, what happened? And then you stop and think, I never thanked them. I never said a word. And finally, they woke up and said, well, they're not appreciating me, so I must not be doing what I'm called to do for them. I'll go find somebody else who I can bless. That's it. I'm going to leave it right there. How many of you can say, I hear the Holy Spirit saying, you're a prophet. You have a prophetic motivation. How many of you can hear the Spirit saying, you're a servant. You have the, you have the servant motivation. Amen? All right. Then plug in with it, use it, or lose it. Amen? Let's stand together tonight. Amen. We're going to finish the next five next week, and then we go to Hebrews. Amen. Let's thank the Lord for his blessing, can we? Thank you, Jesus, for the gifts you've given, the motivational gifts, the divine want to do, and the divine power to do. 
what you've given us to do. And so, Lord, right now, we just thank you. Can we lift our hands to the Lord and say, thank you, Jesus, for the gift you've put in me. Help me to stir up that gift. Stir up the gift of God that's within you. Paul told Timothy, by the laying out of my hands and the, by the ordination of the presbytery, stir up the gift of God that's within you. Stir it up. Get it moving. Find a place to plug in with your gift and get it moving. Use it in the mighty name of Jesus. Let's worship before we go tonight. Thank you, Lord. Come on, everybody. Thank the Lord, the giver of gifts. Say with me, I'm gifted. All right, Brendan, All right. who's gifted? He's going to share out of his That's gift right. right now. Amen. A couple really quick things. As you know, a few weeks ago, actually it's probably a couple months ago now, it's been a busy December, we did a collection for the Kathy Wickwire Scholarship that is designed to help our students go to Mardi Gras. Man, you guys did a fabulous job, and we are this shy of being able to give every single student a full scholarship. We're about just over a thousand short. So we're asking for one more appeal. Just if, if you didn't have a chance to give or you want to just drop in an extra 20 or whatever, put it in an envelope and just put Kathy Wickwire Scholarship and put it in the offering or you could do it online, however you want to do that. We just want to be able to give every student that full scholarship to cover their extra expenses. And the Mardi Gras outreach, again, is, is designed to teach them that heart for gospel missions in the heart of this country. So we go to Mardi Gras, we go out on the streets, and we just we give everybody Jesus. It's great. It's, it's just a fantastic. The last thing in regards to uh, the email that I sent, I think everybody got an email from me this weekend. I am doing that class. My research class for my master's thesis is this Sunday and next Sunday at noon upstairs in the upper room. So I need 50 people. I'm, actually, I'm limited to 50 people. So if you could just text the word research to 817-617-4378, we'll get you on that list. I'll be emailing people by Friday. Um, this topic of being in the Word every single day personally in the regards to spiritual engagement is a topic that's being discussed by numerous denominations around the country. And my... My thesis will help contribute to that conversation. So if you participate, you get to help contribute to that conversation of Bible engagement. It's so important. It really oh, is. It is every. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's it. But by every word. So come join me noon during the or during the noon service upstairs in the upper room this week and next week. I need you to be able to participate in both 
weeks for the research. Nice. Now come on here. Hold on. I, I noticed something. <laughs> Do you know what I noticed? Oh, no, 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 no. We're about to call you Pastor Rip Van Winkle, but here's the deal. They're in the shop. That's why they are. That's why. I, no, I'm looking down. My boots Brendan are in the shop. back in tennis shoes. He's back in tennis. Now, some of you don't know. He was going to run for office, and when he thought he was going to run for office, he transformed. He slept with a tie on. He always had a white shirt and a tie on and these, these spiffy, shiny black shoes you know, dress shoes, and, and the tennis shoe, Brendan, was gone. But tonight right, I still look there. and behold, back in tennis shoes. It's right. a miracle. So, huh? And those are cool tennis shoes. They're leather. What'd you pay for them? No, no, I'm just kidding. All right. Now, tell them about the, the Kathy Wickwire wall up there. Oh, yes. We are, we'll be doing a, uh, we're in the process of putting together the Kathy Wickwire Scholarship Fund wall which will list all the students that have received a scholarship because of your generosity in, in honor of, of Miss Kathy. Kathy's picture is there. Yes. And and all the pictures of the students that have been helped are going to surround yes, her. Yes, that's correct. We're still and in the process of putting that together, but it is upstairs in the upper room. If you go up by the elevator, it's right there. It's along right that there. Wall. It's just beautiful and it's beautifully wall. done. Yeah, it's you ought to go see fantastic. it. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. If you've never been upstairs, you've got to go upstairs. How, has anybody in here never been upstairs? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. You've never been upstairs? I anoint you and appoint you tonight, now. Go up there and look around. I mean, it's because it, it's beautiful. All right? I love all of you. Cindy and I love all of you. Thank God for all of you. You're all gifted. I'm going to count to three. We're going to shout together. Bring somebody Sunday who needs Jesus, a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker, somebody. Bring somebody that needs Jesus. Go out and tell people Jesus is in the house. Matter of fact, that's what we're going to shout. Are you ready? One, two, three. Jesus is in the house. Go tell somebody that. Amen.